Well, excited to join in the scriptures together. It's a good place to be. James 5, 13 to 20. I think it's so appropriate for our church right now, even though it was chosen a month ago. Um, God has a way of uh, telling us what we need to hear when we need to hear it, doesn't he? So look with me at uh, James 5, 13 to 20. Part of wisdom, we've been talking about wisdom for the new year. And part of wisdom is to be plugged into a local church. To be part of a local church. And um, I have a bias as to which local church is best for that. <laughs> uh, First Baptist is my favorite church on the planet. There are many other wonderful, amazing churches. Um, but uh, nevertheless, I, I, I have a bias. And I think if you are part of the, our church at this season, this is a unique season in our church's history. And I think God is doing something very special at this point in time. But the church is really, in many ways, is a source of so much spiritual life, spiritual vitality. Um, can you be a Christian and not be part of a church? Of course you can. Um, and there are some who are in situations where they don't have access to a church. There are those who are in prison, for example, and don't have access to a church. Those who are on the mission field and they haven't yet saw a church be raised up on the mission field. There are those who are sick with various chronic illnesses that don't allow them to be gathered with God's people. Yeah, they can still be part of a church, but they can't be together. Or somebody is new, a new believer, or has recently moved to a new area and they haven't found a church family yet. So there are reasons why you can't be part of a church, at least for a time. But so much of the spiritual life of vitality comes from being part of a church. We've been talking about wisdom. So much wisdom is gained by being part of a church. Just by coming and committing to a local church, You've already, in many ways, achieved a lot, gained a lot of wisdom. Uh, the idea that you're, you're committed to the ups and downs of life with a body. Uh, that level of perseverance, that when things are rough, you stick with it. When things are well, you still uh, carry on meeting with a church family. They say perseverance uh, is actually the most important virtue when it comes to success. It beats any other virtue. Talent, skills, any of that stuff. The one who perseveres continually, that person will end up being more successful. That's what they say. It's the most important. You learn that by being part of a local church. It shows humility. You're willing to come under the authority of a church and submit to spiritual leaders. Um, a lot of people, the reason why people don't go to a church is they say, I don't want to have to submit to anybody. I just do what I want, right? So you already have said, I want to be part of a church. I want to listen to the word being preached and so forth. And I think love. Um, it's hard to love when you're alone. <laughs> you need people for that. And what is a church? It's when you gather with people, fellow believers in Christ, and you learn how to love. So much spiritual life comes from a church. And James here tells us in chapter 5 some of the things that we as a church should be doing. Some of the things that lead to real spiritual life in a local church. So look with me at chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. 5, 13 to 20. It'll be up on the screen. And if you want to grab it, a Bible, there should be a Bible in the pew. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins... He will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three and a half, three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The church, friends, is the source of so much spiritual vitality. Look with me at 13 uh, through 18, the first section, the largest uh, first paragraph there. Uh, The church is a community of prayer. The church is a community of prayer. The church is a place of prayer, and prayer has real power. He lists off a number of different circumstances you might be in. Uh, If you are suffering, he says, and he doesn't specify what kind of suffering. This could be emotional suffering. This could be mental anguish. This could be grief. This could be some type of physical suffering. He he leaves it open, I think, for a reason. If you're suffering, let him pray. (laughs) Let him go to God and speak with God about his or her suffering. Is anyone cheerful? Is the other sort of end of it, two, the two extremes, right? Somebody's suffering, somebody's cheerful. Although, as Christians, we know you can be cheerful and suffer at the same time. But if somebody is rejoicing about something, what should he do? Let him sing praise. Uh, the Psalms, for example, are filled with prayers of praise. You bring it to God in prayer. I remember this one atheist writer said, she said, uh, one of the things she misses about being an atheist now, one of the things she misses about believing in God is now when she experiences something wonderful or marvelous, she has no one to praise. And I thought, exactly. Why do you think you have that within you, that desire within you to praise something beyond you? He's saying, if you're cheerful, if you're celebrating, let them sing songs of praise. Continues, if anyone among you is sick, so specifically this is referring to a physical ailment, what should he do? Let him call the elders of the church. Let him call the leaders of the church and let them pray over him. Uh, Probably calling the elders because um, they're sick and unable to perhaps get out of bed. So the elders have to come to them is the idea rather than going to the elders. And then the elders will pray over them as well. He mentions here the anointing um, with oil in the name of the Lord. That's probably the most... uh, Unusual thing for us, maybe we're not very familiar with. Uh, anointing with oil um, is connected with healing in different parts of the Bible. Mark six thirteen talks about the apostles going forth and they would anoint with oil and heal. Uh, the two are, are connected. Um, it was typical for olive oil to be used for medicinal purposes, uh, but that's not what's going on here. It was also used to sort of set somebody apart for prayer, anointing somebody for a specific office, like becoming the king of Israel, or something like that. So the point of the oil here is that the church now as a whole has set this person apart and has asked for the Lord's work and blessing in this person, uniquely in this person's life, that the presence of God, the presence of his Holy Spirit is with them, even as the church and its leaders are praying over that person and asking God to work in his or her Life. And I'll just tell you that uh, the elders of this church, we do go and we pray over people and we do anoint with oil at times as well. In fact, I have a little vial of oil, olive oil, <laughs> in my office. Some people say, what is that for? And it's for this very reason. Sometimes to set somebody apart, we pray for them and we just, uh, you do what God has told us to do here. Uh, there's no power in the oil. It's no superstition or magic or anything like that. Um, it's simply a symbol of the presence of God that we are praying, determined, asking God to do something in this person's life. And he says, if you do this, what happens? Uh, God answers prayer. He gives strength to the person who is weak. 
He gives greater joy to the person who praises him. C.S. Lewis said that praise doesn't take away joy. Actually, when we praise someone, praise God for something, it actually increases the joy over what we're celebrating. When you celebrate someone or something, it is, your, your joy actually increases. And yes, he heals the sick at times. He continues a little later at saying the prayer of a righteous person is effective. There's power to this. There's power to prayer is what he's saying. Uh, he says, the prayer for a righteous person. Now, what's that all about? You might say, well, if I'm more righteous, I get more prayers answered. And if I'm not as righteous, then I don't get as many prayers answered. I think what he's saying here is the, the person. Uh, so we're saved only by God's grace through faith alone. It's very important to understand. Is it, being a righteous person has nothing to do with how you get saved or whether you are saved. Uh, however, as those who are in Christ, God shows his fatherly discipline and love and care in different ways. So the person who is walking closely with the Lord and wants what God wants finds their prayers answered because they want what God wants for them. The person who is not walking with the Lord closely and has desires that are apart from what God wants would find that their prayers are not answered as much because they don't desire what God would want. And he gives the very example of this next here with Elijah. He's referring to 1 Kings 17 to 18. But Elijah... Praise to God that it, fervently, it says, that it wouldn't rain. <laughs> and it stops raining. There's a famine over the land for three and a half years. And then he prays to God fervently again that it would rain and the heavens open up and it rains. So what's that all about? Well, if you read 1 Kings 17 to 18, and you can take that as some homework if you want for the week. But what happens there is that Israel at that point in time was turning away from the Lord. Uh, they were becoming wicked. And particularly with their king, Ahab, uh, had turned to all different types of horrible sins. You can read them for yourself. Just a, a bad, horrible time for Israel and its history. And so Elijah goes, he's a prophet of Israel, he goes to the king and he declares God's judgment. A famine over the land. So it's not as if this was a party trick for Elijah. <laughs> Look at me, I can make it stop raining. No, he understands God's will and asks God to bring that will about and it happens for three and a half years. Not a drop of rain. Then you see a sort of corporate repentance on the mountain with Elijah, the prophets of Baal. Maybe some of you guys are familiar with that story. And so what does Elijah do? He begs and pleads with God that he would bring back the rain. And it happens. Again, seeking to be in line with God's will to bring mercy on Israel. God is at work through Elijah. He's hearing Elijah's prayers, but Elijah's prayers are aligning with the will of God. Interestingly enough, when he prays, uh, it starts off with a small cloud. It says it's the size of a man's fist. At least that's what it looks like. Tiny little cloud that gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then it turns into this huge rainstorm uh, over all of Israel. And I think in some ways that's how prayer works, isn't it? You know, it starts off small, he begins to answer, and over time, prayers get more and more answered, and then it turns into a huge storm. And I think that's, I hope and pray that's what he's doing right here in our own church. He's starting to answer and we're waiting for the storm, right? To see what God brings about. It has a long-lasting effect, but God answers prayer. Does God still do this stuff? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, he still answers prayer. Uh, friends, there are measurable effects of prayer. I, I don't know if you know that, and I think that's because we're made in the image of God and we're, we were created to pray. So there are some measurable scientific effects of prayer. Uh, here are some of them. Uh, decades of research have shown that prayer calms stress, it enhances brain function and brain activity. It improves attention span and planning. 
It reduces depression and anxiety. It reduces hypertension or high blood pressure. It protects the brain from cognitive decline associated with aging. It lowers cholesterol levels. It decreases sleepiness. It improves sleep. It uh, causes fewer headaches. It relaxes your muscles. And it leads to longer lifespans. So prayer is actually physically measurably good for us. And I think, again, it's because God has made us and he knows that that's what we were created partly to do, to spend time with them in prayer. You even see the echoes of that in religions all over the world with meditation and so forth, that prayer is something we're called to do. However, is prayer more than that? Definitely. There are answers to prayer. That there is a being, God, whom we're speaking to and asking him to act in our behalf And he does absolutely answer prayer, for sure. Does he still heal today? Yes, most certainly he does heal today. We've seen that in our own congregation. If I could just point out a couple of examples. We prayed for our brother David Poirier. We brought him forward in front of the congregation. The elders laid hands and prayed for him and his cancer, and his cancer is gone. God used different means, certainly, but I think it was an answer, most certainly, to prayer. We prayed for Nian's daughter. We begged and pleaded with God that Elizabeth would be healed and so far so great and we'll keep praying and seeing what God does we've been praying for Elaine O'Neill for her cancer for months now maybe even over a year I think and all of a sudden this liver she gets the phone call the liver's available you got to be at the hospital in two hours and she's two and a half hours away <laughs> she's riding to the hospital to get there guess what happens the car breaks down on the way there. So what does she do? She says to her son, you stay with the car, or is it her daughter-in-law, I think. She calls 911 and says, I need an ambulance, and the ambulance gets there, takes her the rest of the way, and gets her to her liver transplant. Yes, God answers prayer, and yes, he does heal. I think that's what he's calling us to do. That's what he's calling the elders to do, pray for healing. Some have seen this as a reference to last rites. Uh, that uh, the purpose of this is that uh, the elders come, uh, or, the, or the priest, or whatever it's supposed to be, they come and they anoint the person to prepare them to die. But if you read it, that's not what it's saying. It's saying specifically here that he's, they're praying that God would heal this person, not prepare them for death. Billy Graham tells a story about uh, uh, a man who went to the horse racing, and I'm not, a, not advocating gambling, but he goes to the horse race, and uh, this priest goes and he blesses one of the horses, and that horse ends up winning the whole thing. So the next week he goes and he says, uh, you know what, I'm going to, he sees the priest, he goes and he blesses one of the horses and he says, I'm going to put all my money on that one horse. And it ends up that that horse comes in dead last. And so he goes to the priest and he says, what happened here? You've, last week you praised, you blessed the horse, it comes in first. Next this week you bless the horse, it comes in last. And he said, the problem is you know the difference between a blessing and last rites. That's the problem. So <laughs> the second one was the last rites for the horse. That's what he was saying. But no, that's not what he's talking about here. There is no last rites. He's talking about pleading with God for healing. Now, does God always heal? No. Not in the way we want. Not in the way we ask. We all die. And sometimes God works out his will, his perfect will of healing, not in this life, but in eternity. And that's important to remember. We lay it before him. But that being said, friends, I think the point of this passage is that we should be more willing to go to him And ask him to do that which is miraculous. I I think when you don't ask God to do what is miraculous, and you don't expect it, you're not looking for it, you probably don't see it too often. (laughs) But when you go to God begging and pleading and trusting him and looking for answers, oftentimes he does what cannot be done outside of his will, of his work. And again, the elders are ready and they're willing uh, to pray for people, pray with you. 
whether on Sunday mornings or during the week, they love you. <laughs> Your elders love you here and a great group of people that care about you. If I die, if I get hit by a bus this week, the elders will still be here meeting next week and still leading the service, still bringing the word to you. So, in fact, I think this, this year we're going to get Adam up here preaching a sermon. So, Lord willing. Last year he said, I need another year. So that's it, Adam, your time's up. This year it's going to have to happen. Let's make sure we are a praying people. We're praying people. We pray every Wednesday night uh, at 6.30 to 8 o'clock. It's been a faithful group that have been praying. We've, we were thinking about it last Wednesday for over 10 years. Virtually every Wednesday. Every once in a while. It's too icy or whatever. We, but almost every Wednesday, a faithful group of about six people. And I'll name them. Uh, Frank Maynard and Priscilla Coco and uh, Young Harrington and Joe Harrington. And yes, they are related to me, by the way. Uh, and Althea Broderick and James Taylor. And there have been others who have come and gone over the years. And we have seen some amazing answers to prayer in that group. Haven't we, Frank? We've seen God do some amazing things in that group. And I think in many ways, friends, that's, that's so much of the support behind this church is what happens there on Wednesday nights. So we lift people up in prayer and, and watch God answer. We pray a lot on Sunday mornings. Uh, somebody told me before that we have a reputation as a church that prays a lot on Sunday morning in our service. That's a good reputation to have. I hope they meant it in a positive way. I don't know. But that's a good reputation to, to have. But we want to um, model prayer, uh, model what we prioritize in prayer here on Sunday morning. People ask all the time, I don't know how to pray. Can you teach me how to pray? So come and listen to us pray on Sunday mornings. And hopefully that's in some sense how to pray. What to ask God for, how to go to him. Um, and let's praise God when we're cheerful. Let's praise God a lot too. Uh, let's sing louder together with one another. And I, I know that Pastor Mike would agree with me on this. Let's pray with more, let's pray, praise with more passion, with more joyfulness, with more expectation of God working. Let's really praise him with deep worship. Maybe God will add to our number of those who are praying. One of my uh, prayers for our church is from the great hymn there. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. My great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. I don't even know if we can fit a thousand people in here. Although I think we did once, right, uh, David? We, we, had a, we had a thousand, I think, for one funeral recently. But, oh, that God would give us a thousand tongues to sing His praise together. What an awesome thing that would be. And friends, there are seasons of prayer and there are seasons of fasting. We've had one last year. Maybe it's time for another one when we plead with God. Church is a community of prayer. Look with me at 15b to 16, so sort of a subset of prayer. It's kind of stuck in the middle of prayer. Uh, the church is a community of forgiveness. Church is a community of forgiveness. Verse 15, he says, If he committed sins, he will be forgiven. So sometimes, um, as he will say here in a little bit, there can be healing um, that is directly related to sin. Now, he be careful what he's saying. He's not saying all sin leads to sickness, or even worse, that all sickness is a result of sin. But there are some sicknesses that are a result of sin, and if you pray and confess your sins, it'll be uh, taken away. This is what he's saying there. Pray uh, to confess your sins. Is, uh, part of prayer is to confess your sins to God. Uh, part of what we do when we pray is to admit to God what we've done. Uh, you've forgiven in Christ. You don't have to get every sin. If you, don't, you, know, if you miss a sin, you don't, you don't not go to heaven. That's not how it works. You're forgiven in Christ, but we go to him and we confess our sins to turn from them, away from him. 
Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another. So it's not just in prayer that we confess our sins, but we do so with one another. Uh, There should be sort of an openness about confessing your sins and being open about the fact that, hey, I'm a sinner and I failed in this area. Friends, there should be people you can confess your sins to. And he says there will be healing, which may refer, as I said, to physical healing, but more than that, may refer to spiritual healing or a sense of peace, uh, freedom from depression or fear or whatever it is when you confess and go to him. Friends, should we confess our sins to each other? Uh, Easy answer is yes. Yes. In fact, it's interesting. We, We find it easy to confess our sins to God, right? And difficult, hesitant to confess our sins to each other. When it really should be the other way around, right? God is the only one who's holy and without sin. We're all sinners, so confessing your sin to another sinner shouldn't be a big deal. And yet it is. We're much more afraid to go to each other than we are to God. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the uh, German uh, uh, pastor, theologian, said, said as much. He said this. Why is it that it is often easier for us to confess our sins to God than to a brother? God is holy and sinless. He's a just judge of evil and the enemy of all disobedience. But a brother is sinful as we are. He knows from his own experience the dark night of secret sin. Why should we not find it easier to go to a brother than to the holy God? And of course, friends, we can go to a holy God, so I don't want to miss that, because we have a Savior in Jesus. But nevertheless, why would we hesitate to go to each other? Uh, we don't have confessionals. <laughs> we, don't, uh, we don't do penance. Um, you don't have to go to a priest to confess your sins. Um, that's not how it works. Um, I remember as a kid, uh, the time, I, so I grew up Roman Catholic, the first time I had to learn, con, uh, do, do penance or whatever, go to a confessional, uh, they tra- started this new thing where they took the wall out of the confessional. All those who are Catholic know what I'm talking about. And they just put two chairs in there facing each other. Now for a 12-year-old boy, whatever I was there, that was terrifying. <laughs> the point was to make it more, uh, you know, whatever, easier. It actually made it far more frightening for me. Give me the wall back at that point in time. But no, friends, he's saying here, not go to your pastor and confess your sins. Notice what he says, confess to one another. He assumes here that there's good, healthy relationships in the church, that you people whom you can go to and be open about your struggles and your sins. That's what we want to see happen in our community groups, by the way. So after Sunday morning, the next step is really to, to join into a community group to get closer with a group of people whom hopefully you begin to trust and they gain your trust and you can do this very thing. And healing comes with that. We, we speak forgiveness to each other. It's one thing to know and we should know that God in Christ forgives us of our sins. But it's different than to hear a sister in Christ tell you, you know what you did was wrong but God has forgiven you. You need to let that go and be free of that. We hold each other accountable too. So when you confess to one another, now it's open, now it's in the open, now you can deal with that sin and you can begin to change. It's a form of loving one another. Friends, let's make sure our church is a place of forgiveness. A place of forgiveness. Let's be a place, first and foremost, that introduces people to the God of forgiveness. To the God who forgives sins in Jesus. That's our, our primary mission, right? We're trying to tell people there is a God in heaven who loves you enough to send his son Jesus to die for your sins so that if you put your faith in him, trust him as Lord and Savior, you will be forgiven completely of your sins and can walk a newness of life in him. Let's introduce people to the God of forgiveness. But let's also forgive one another. Forgive as we have been forgiven. Uh, when we say the Lord's Prayer, and every so often hopefully you say the Lord's Prayer, what do you say? 
Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Notice the assumption there that you have already forgiven your debtors. It's not even a prayer request. It's not help me to forgive my debtors. It's assumed as a Christian, you've done that. Now you go to God and ask for forgiveness for your sins because you've already forgiven. Because how can you hold it against a brother or sister? God is holding nothing against you. Let's encourage one another to forgive others as well. Even those, friends, even those who have not asked for forgiveness. I think those are the hardest ones. Sometimes somebody comes to you and says, would you forgive me? It's easy to forgive. What about someone who never asked for forgiveness, never even admits they're wrong, and still you're able to forgive them? And I've, been, I've been shocked by just stunning examples of forgiveness. Um, one in my own life is that that's how I began, how I came to faith. Many of you guys have heard this story so many times, but my brother was uh, abused as a kid. And his ability to forgive the person who hurt him, who did not confess their sin, who never recognized it, who denied it to the day of his death, and he's passed away now, was what shocked me. And his answer, his explanation was, Rick, if God can forgive me for my sins, who am I to hold this against him? Friends, that's the gospel. And the power of the gospel leads to forgiveness. Let it be a place of forgiveness. Many of you guys have been watching what's been going on online with uh, Larry Nassar, the famous gymnast, um, physical therapist, and his abuse of the girls. Well, one of the girls, Rachel Den Hollander, who was really the first to publicly accuse him and the one who has really led the charge against them, this is what she said. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt. So you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. How's that for a statement of recognizing the weight of sin, but recognizing the mercy of God as well? Friends, let's be a place of prayer, but let's be a place of forgiveness. In 19 to 20, the church is a community of restoration. Restoration. Look what he says here. Uh, a community of restoration, of salvation, of redemption. Uh, he ends the letter with this, these last two verses. You know, when you end a letter, you, you put, sort of put your, your the last emphasis, the last word to leave them is perhaps the most important, or at least you want to put some emphasis on that. So what's the thing he's going to say at the end of this letter of James to the churches? Uh, he's going to talk about evangelism. <laughs> he's going to talk about restoration. He says, if anyone wanders from the truth. Uh, so what's the assumption there? We wander from the truth. <laughs> we're not always here. We, uh, we're not always steadfast. We at times can wander. What's the famous hymn there? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. But we do wander. Uh, how, what does he mean by wandering? Uh, we wander into sin. Uh, we allow sin into our life, and then we get more of it and more of it and more of it, and it begins to take over. Or that may happen with doubt. Uh, maybe there isn't a God, and that doubt begins to take over more, and then you begin to doubt his very being or existence or work, at least in your life. Or you begin a little bit of anger or bitterness towards God, and that grows and grows and grows. Uh, and usually, and I think what he's probably referring to here, the people who have walked away, wandered from the church family. They're no longer meeting with the church, they're no longer part of the church. 
So what does he say? Whoever wanders from the truth, whoever, anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back. I love that. So what's the assumption there that we're going to get them? Uh, that people wander and we actively seek to restore them to God, restore them to faith. What does he mean? How do you do that? I don't know if he means visiting those who have wandered, if he means writing letters that didn't have phones or text or Facebook back then, but asking, inquiring about them, seeking to restore people who have wandered from the faith. If someone does so, he saves his soul, he says, and covers a multitude of sins. He brings that person, restores them to salvation. The most vital thing that a church does is brings people to restoration, to salvation in Christ. The local church should be a place of restoring people to God. Uh, You know, there are people who, what's called church hop, they church hop. You know, they jump from church to church to church, right? Uh, That's sad that people do that. Um, It says something bad, I think, about the spiritual state of the church here in the United States where people just say, I don't like what happened there, so I'm going to go to the next church until something bad happens there, and then I'll go somewhere else, and so forth. That's not what he's talking about here. (laughs) That's not what he's talking about here, going from church to church. That is a whole other issue. He's talking to people who are leaving the faith. You know, most people actually claim some background with the church. Most people in the United States, that is. Whether that's a liberal Protestant background, a Roman Catholic background, or a Southern Baptist background, or uh, some people who now say they have no affiliation. They grew up in a certain way, but now they say, I don't, I don't affiliate with any church. In fact, that's the most growing number, uh, uh, percentage of people are in that none category. And when I say none, I'm not talking about N-U-N. Okay? <laughs> Tom got me right away. N-O-N-E, none. They don't associate with anybody else. Pew Research said this, the share of Americans who do not identify with a religious group is surely growing. Nationwide surveys in the 70s and 80s found that fewer than 1 in 10 U.S. adults said they had no religious affiliation. Fully 23% now describe themselves as atheists, agnostics, or nothing in particular. So people are, are leaving the Christian background, leaving churches. What are we called to do? Called to restore them. What if they have no background in church? Then the same thing, not restore them, but welcome them into the faith for the first time. We restore people to God. We restore them to the church family. We pray and hope that God helps us to bring people, restore people to God. You guys have heard me say this, those who have been coming, and I said it this morning. I'm praying, I'm pleading with God that this is the most evangelistic year in our church. Now, for some churches, that may not be a big thing because they're 10 years old. For us, we're 252 years old. So that's a big prayer. (laughs) We're praying that God does something really, truly remarkable in our church this year. We're praying, as he says in 13 to 18, passionately asking God to do something. Hopefully we're forgiving, verses 16 to 17. We're, we're moving forward. We're recognizing we're not perfect. We recognize we've made mistakes and are going forward. But now let's be about this work here. It's 19 to 20 of restoring people to God, of witnessing and welcoming, telling people the good news about Jesus and inviting them to come join us. We hope, friends, that we're going to have a new, renewed focus on outreach, that we really want to impact both locally, our community, and globally on the mission field. And God's, I think, already starting to answer that prayer. Let's keep praying. Let's keep asking him to do something. The church is the source of so much spiritual vitality. It's a place of prayer. We gather together and pray for one another. It's a place of forgiveness where we confess our sins and to one another privately in conversations or to God corporately. It's a place of restoration. Many other things too, but that's what he talks about here. 
And this, friends, is the end of our series on wisdom for the new year. Uh, we, want, we want wisdom not just for January, but for the rest of the year, too. Uh, it's, hopefully it's not like a typical um, New Year's resolution that comes and goes. Uh, one person said that fitness centers, they sell year-long contracts knowing that the majority of customers will not come for more than a few weeks. Anyone that goes to the gym knows it gets full in January. Uh, NPR covered one chain with 6,500 members per location in only room for 300 at a time. <laughs> so they're assuming the vast majority of people are not going to keep coming or going to come or even come to the gym. They just made a resolution. Hopefully that's not the case for us. May the Lord give us wisdom in this new year. Friends, may we as a church sort of read the signs of the time, as Jesus said to do. Read the culture, read the world that we're in right now. Um, read the, the church and, and the place our church where we're at right now, the season we're in. And plead with God that he would use us mightily this year to reach many for him. Let's pray. Well, gracious Father, thank you so much for this morning and for this gathering of your people together here at First Baptist Haverhill. As I said, in my openly biased opinion, this is my favorite church in the world. And I'm thankful, Father, so grateful to you for the way you have been working here, making us a place of prayer. Do so more and more so, Lord. Help us to have our, fir- our first reaction is to go to you and plead with you and ask you for things, trusting that you will answer and that your perfect will will work itself out. Even when you don't answer the way we have asked or what um, specifically we have asked for, we trust your fatherly wisdom. Make us a place of forgiveness, Lord. A place where we welcome people to come to the God of forgiveness who's given us Jesus. A place where we are open to confess sins and not feel looked down upon, uh, but recognizing, Lord, we're all sinners. Nobody rises up above another. We all are looking to a God for mercy. And make us a place, Lord, of restoration where we go get them, those who are wandering. Encourage them to come to know the Lord Jesus and to begin a relationship with you and to walk with you. Thank you, Father, for your presence with us now and here with your spirit. Do this work of growth in us as your body. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.